So yes, welcome everyone. Uh, my name is Bryn Rieger. I'm from the Ontario Justice Education Network. Thank you very much for joining us for today's webinar. Today's session uh, is on child witnesses in the criminal court and has been organized by members of OGEN's Toronto Committee. Uh, so before we get going and before I introduce our panel, we have a few housekeeping items to take care of. First of all, if there are any links to be shared uh, throughout our presentation, we are going to post them in the chat. So keep your eye on the chat. It's on the uh, bottom left of your Zoom screen. If you have any uh, questions or comments, please use the chat or the Q&A function. And finally, this presentation is being recorded. So we are going to post the video and the PowerPoints to our website afterwards, and we'll let you know when we do so. And before we, I introduce our panelists, I'd like to start off with a land acknowledgement. We acknowledge that we're gathered upon the traditional territories of the Mississauga of the New Credit First Nation, Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, Wendat, and Huron Indigenous peoples, who are the original nations of this land. In making this acknowledgement, we recall as well that Toronto remains home to a large and diverse Indigenous population. This population includes victims and survivors of the residential school system and their descendants who have been impacted by its atrocious legacy. The Canadian legal and education systems, of course, are settler institutions. In Toronto and elsewhere, these institutions can exist and work because of legal covenants between Indigenous and European nations. Indigenous nations and European nations, rather. While we are grateful for the opportunity to live and work in this community, we remain mindful of broken covenants and of the need to work to make things right with all our relations. As we think about the administration of justice, we are compelled to consider the real impact of institutional injustice on individuals, families, and whole communities. I'd now like to introduce our panel. First up is Maggie Brown. Maggie Brown has been an Assistant Crown Attorney with the Ministry of the Attorney General for the past 22 years. She is a trial crown in the Toronto Downtown Crown Attorney's Office and is currently the lead of the Child Abuse and Exploitation Team at the Old City Hall Courthouse. Roiland Mariah is a criminal defense lawyer at McGregor Mariah Horch LLP. He was called to the bar in 2005 and began practicing criminal defense work in 2007, first with the McLeod Group and then as a sole practitioner in 2012. He joined McGregor Mariah Horwich LLP in 2018. As part of his practice, he conducts criminal trials both at the Ontario Court of Justice and the Superior Court of Justice. Barb McIntyre has worked in the field of child abuse for the last 40 years in the area of treatment and most extensively with child witnesses in the Canadian justice system. Barb has worked with Boost Child and Youth Advocacy Centre as the program manager for the Child Victim Witness Program and Advocate Program for the past 34 years. Barb helped recently to implement and be responsible for the BARC program, Boost Accredited Reliable Canine Program, which follows the courthouse dog model out of the United States. Barb is the primary handler of NSD Iggy. So with uh, all that, and now that you've gotten to uh, know our panelists a little bit, I'm going to turn it over to them. Thank you, panelists. Uh, thank you, Bryn, and uh, thank you, first off, everyone for attending. Um, uh, it's really a pleasure to be here, specifically to be here with um, with both Barb and Maggie, because, you know, out of the group of all of us, I'm, I'm the rookie and the newbie here, and you're really going to get some incredible uh, knowledge and wealth of information um, from both of them, and uh, hopefully I'll be able to add to that as well. Uh, we're really looking forward to today's discussion about the child and witnesses in the criminal court. Um, uh, as has been the case really for everyone, the pandemic of the past year has really affected a lot of plans that many of us have made. And in fact, I can say that uh, the, the people that are here on the panel today have really been looking forward to doing this panel for over a year now because we were actually hoping to do this uh, in the summer of last year uh, and obviously hoping to do it in person. Uh, we can't do that. So we're thankful that you're able to come and attend with us uh, by Zoom. And we do hope that in the new year, um, uh, as things start to change and get back to normal, we'll eventually be able to have this experience in person in the courtroom where there's a, a different dynamic and a feel and hopefully a better opportunity to give all of you a sense of the work that we do within the criminal courts. Uh, as I said, uh, the past year has been one of pretty significant growth and change for the criminal justice system. 
Uh, I know that probably some of you have heard about the recent resumption of Provincial Offences Act matters. Um, criminal matters are actually are under a different ambit, uh, and criminal courts have uh, continued to operate in some capacity essentially since the pandemic started. Uh, there was an initial shutdown uh, in March of last year. Uh, that was very brief. It was really just so that the system could retool and reboot, I guess, if I can put it that way. And uh, it's really operated in some capacity since shortly after the pandemic started. Uh, there was a real push uh, for bails and pleas for in-custody matters so that we could reduce the remand population. Uh, there was a significant amount of work done by um, justice system participants at all levels uh, to um, just work collaboratively to keep the justice system moving, uh, given the importance of the outcomes, both for accused and for victims and for witnesses. And so we're fortunate really to have many people that work within the system that were committed to ensuring that it could continue to operate. Uh, there's still significant backlogs and uh, obviously new challenges with a new system. And I'm sure that you'll probably hear about some of those challenges uh, during the course of our presentation today. Um, but uh, what's essentially happened is that the system has been forced to adapt and to modernize by the pandemic. Uh, so, for example, some of the out-of-court and video procedures that we'll talk about that we use for child witnesses uh, are almost almost seem to be the norm now, given that many of the criminal trials and criminal uh, court appearances that we have are essentially appearing in an out-of-court and Zoom fashion. Um, more so, um, I, and very interestingly, I guess I can say is that it, just as the pandemic has sort of changed the approach that we've had to dealing with criminal trials, the um, CYACs have done the same thing in the context of child witness testimony. Um, uh, what um, you'll see is that uh, many people have a particular view of how courts function, and there's just sort of a monolithic view of how that occurs but uh, may not have a, a true realization of how courts deal specifically uh, with the systems that are in place to assist child witnesses. And so what we hope to be able to do today is to provide you a bit of insight into how that works uh, from the outset of the investigations through to witnesses testifying at trial and also a few comments on any involvement that they would have in the sentencing process. Uh, it's a broad ranging topic as you can all imagine. Uh, so we ambitiously decided that we could do it in one hour. Um, and uh, I have every faith in Maggie and Barb, not so much in myself as a criminal defense lawyer who tends to be long-winded. So with all of that being said, thank you all uh, for uh, participating in this, uh, uh, this panel with us. Uh, and I'm going to turn it to Barb um, uh, to give a bit of a background about uh, CYAC programs. Uh, thanks, Barb. Move to the next slide. Next one, yeah. So Child and Youth Advocacy Centers um, change has been a change over many years. And what the whole goal of a Child and Youth Advocacy Center is to take it from the child's perspective and the family's perspective. So when a child comes into uh, a CYC or um, in the States, we call them CACs. They, all the services are co-located, which means that children and the families don't have to travel to get all over to get all the services that they need. So the investigation will be done here. The children's aid or child protection is here. Everybody's on site, including treatment, medical, and the police investigation, along with advocacy from our staff and also court preparation. And then we will make referrals to other services outside that aren't co-located. You want to go to the next slide? Thanks, Maggie. Um, the Child and Youth Advocacy Center movement started out in the U.S. actually in Huntsville, Alabama, and that's the biggest was the biggest Child and Youth Advocacy Center almost 40 years ago. There's now over 900 Child and Youth Advocacy Centers throughout the U.S. And they operate now in 20 different countries through the world as the best practice for child witnesses and child abuse throughout um, services that will help the family and be co-located. Okay, next slide. So within Canada, we've been really lucky um, that the child and youth advocacies have started to really open up 
uh, due to funding, we have 40 centers in Canada right now that are either open or have done feasibility studies to look at their community will have a child and youth advocacy center. So we've been really lucky to be able to have this funding and this ability to open in Canada. It's a best practice, as I said, in the US with 900. Um, and they all look a little bit different depending on the size. Some of the larger cities like Chicago or Los Angeles have really large child and youth advocacy centers. Ours in Toronto is fairly large and then they're throughout the province of Ontario right now too. So I'm going to just speak about um, the police work that's done at the uh, CYACs, um, but also if there isn't a dedicated uh, CYC in the region, um, the work done by police officers who may be in uh, units that focus on um, cases that involve child witnesses. Um, and so I'm just going to speak to you a little bit about uh, the involvement of those uh, officers um, and some of the approaches that are taken in relation to uh, cases involving child witnesses. So in Toronto, um, the uh, Child Youth Advocacy Centre does have a dedicated unit of officers who investigate um, cases involving um, child abuse. So that could be physical abuse of children, um, sexual abuse of children. And uh, depending on the type of offence, uh, it may be focused on uh, children who are 18 and under or 16 and under. Um, and that's really a mandate um, that they would be called uh, two cases across the tr uh, Toronto region uh, that may involve uh, a child-related investigation. There are, in, in those specific cases, if it fits within their mandate, um, because of the co-location of services uh, in Toronto, uh, they are on-site child protection uh, services. Um, so the uh, Children's Aid Society, the Catholic Children's Aid Society, um, and other protection agencies will work with the police officers and potentially start a joint investigation. One of the reasons for uh, a joint investigation is it may mean that the child only provides one statement. So the police officer will take the lead on the interview of the child, uh, a person uh, from the child protection agency uh, may be present and able to hear that statement and they conduct a joint investigation for the initial stages of the case. That means the child isn't being subjected to uh, necessarily an interview in relation to the same um, uh, incident. And uh, the hope is that um, it's, it's less traumatic for the child, but also uh, allows us to preserve that evidence as, as early as possible in a way that can be used for the different reasons. So if it's going to court, it's very important that that evidence is preserved um, for court purposes, uh, for disclosure purposes, uh, for child protection. Obviously, um, it's important that they have that disclosure as soon as possible to um, address any child protection uh, needs. Uh, so I'm going to focus primarily on the police investigation and how things get to court. Um, so regardless of where the investigation comes from, but I'll, I'll sort of focus a little bit in Toronto, because um, that's my own experience. Um, the police in any jurisdiction have to review the statement provided by the child, continue their police investigation, and always make a determination as to whether or not a criminal charges will be laid. Um, and if they have reasonable grounds to believe an offense has been committed is, is their standard. Uh, if they come to that conclusion, the case is then brought to court if ch charges are laid, um, and then a, a crown will be assigned to review the case. Um, depending if the person has been arrested and taken into custody, the first stages are actually um, the matter will proceed to a bail hearing or bail court to determine whether or not the person will spend um, the pre-trial pre time in custody or will be in the community um, on conditions. So that's a very important stage um, at which um, certain um, uh, services are going to be needed for us to assess um, issues in relation to safety and what the appropriate um, concerns may be if the person were um, to be uh, released into the community and the appropriate conditions are in place to protect um, anyone who 
uh, may have safety concerns. In those early stages, there will be referrals by the police to the child wit witness advocate if there is one on the, on the case. And Barb will talk a little bit more, but um, in, in, in normal times, uh, again, the co-location of um, a child witness advocate at um, the CYC actually allows for that advocate to be there at those, again, those initial stages following that forensic interview um, and being able to provide the supports at the time. Um, uh, there may also be a need to have medical or mental health supports in place. And so the police have uh, connections to make sure those uh, pieces are in place at that very early stage when needed. Um, and in Toronto, uh, many uh, referrals will be made to the Sick Children's Hospital who have specialized uh, units there. Um, who can assist in those matters as well. Um, if the case comes to court, then um, the uh, case comes to the Crown. The police have to gather all of the evidence that they have. So the statements from the child, the statement from any other witnesses, any other forensics, so physical evidence that they may have gathered, um, and any uh, um, other materials that are relevant to the case must be provided to the Crown. The Crown reviews those ultimately we provide them to uh, the defense counsel as well, uh, or the accused who's charged if they're representing themselves. Um, and uh, then the police will continue the crown throughout the case, um, attending witness meetings, communicating with the, the witness on their behalf. Um, and really there's a, a very important role at that early stage for the police officers to have a carriage of their case and see them through given um, what we can anticipate in these cases, a lot of need for support. Um, I'm just going to speak very briefly about the, the police interview just at this stage. I'm going to talk a little bit more about what happens when we go to court. Um, but it's really important to understand um, the approach to a child um, a witness is different than any other type of um, uh, interview, uh, it can be very challenging for police officers, especially when you're dealing with a child of a very young age um, who may have um, uh, limitations in respect to language, um, communication skills, or may just be extremely nervous and scared um, about everything that has been happening in their lives. So um, the police, especially uh, the ones I work with, are highly trained and, and skilled at um, how to approach a child and, and hopes to get the child to give um, an account of what they can recall at the earliest time. So we preserve their memories at that time, uh, which are so critical in these cases. Um, so you'll see on the screen, um, just an example at the top of a child-friendly interview room. You'll often have um, chairs that are at child height, um, a, a table, they'll often bring in coloring and, and crayons or it, depending on the age of the child, something to help the child sort of calm in that environment. There may be you know, stuffed animals or couches. It, it, there are places where the hope is that the child will feel more um, uh, capable of, of providing uh, a description of something that may be very, very difficult for them to uh, give to a, a stranger. Um, it's very important these recordings are able to be heard and the child to be able to seen because uh, those interviews themselves may end up being evidence in court. Um, we'll talk about this a little bit, but the Crown actually may use that evidence in court as part of the child's evidence. And that again, helps to limit the amount of times the child has to initially give the story of what happened. Um, and it's very important for the defense to have a very good understanding of what the child recalls so they can also prepare their case and, and approach um, a cross-examination um, in that context. Uh, key to that though, is if this is going to be um, a, a court statement and has to follow the rules that we would have in court, which mean they have to be very open questions, non-leading, not putting uh, suggestions or words into the child's sort of um, descriptions, which can be very challenging. And as I said, the officers are well-trained um, to try to get as much from the child as they can without any um, uh, leading or suggestion uh, to the child because everybody just wants to know what they know. Um, 
In concert, and I'll just mention this very briefly, um, if anyone comes to the courthouse and uh, in, in certain types of cases and certainly any ch case involving a child um, a victim or a witness, uh, we have the services of the Victim Witness Assistance Program. And these are uh, workers who are at the courthouse who have office meeting room that if you come to the courthouse as a witness, it may actually be that's where you will wait to go in to a court, uh, they provide supports to uh, witnesses uh, in that physical space, but also um, in an informational way. So they will assist uh, witnesses who come into uh, the system at that early stage of bail, they actually start the communication with families, uh, with victims, um, and try to explain to them the court process, be available to answer questions, perhaps give them dates on court dates. Um, and they really are a valuable, um, invaluable part of um, sort of the, the team of people who start um, uh, connecting with witnesses to help them understand as they navigate what can be a very lengthy process. Um, to get through the court system. Uh, they will assist the Crown and the police in communicating and setting up meetings um, and really are there to provide emotional support and referrals to any counseling or other types of services um, a witness may need during the court process. Um, and they also at the end will help uh, also facilitate um, the taking or the understanding and completing a victim impact statement if that's uh, where the case ends up uh, at the end of the process. Uh, from the Crown's perspective, um, I'll just sort of touch on what my role is as a Crown. Um, one of the uh, benefits of working on the team that I work on at Old City Hall is that I'm dedicated to child abuse cases. Um, we deal with uh, physical, uh, sexual abuse of children. We uh, handle cases involving child exploitation um, and uh, a, a wide variety of cases um, uh, where a child may be just a witness. They may not be the um, uh, victim, but they have potentially uh, witnessed uh, often domestic uh, violence in their home and uh, they have provided a statement or evidence to the police and maybe potential witnesses. Um, our, our program is unique, uh, I think. We are the only team in, in Ontario um, that's dedicated um, to these types of cases. And as I said, a lot of our cases will come from the CYC. They may come from any division across the, um, um, or in the downtown area as well. Uh, but there are many crowns who have a lot of experience in these types of cases who have worked with um, vulnerable witnesses and children um, and understand the use of testimonial aids. It is a skill that you learn over time as to how to approach uh, a, a child witness. Um, it can be very um, scary, actually, to start with, because you, you feel the vulnerability and, you know, you, you really need to sort of get a, a sense of how are you going to communicate with this child and, and have them come to court and, um, you know, have that not to be a traumatic experience for them um, as well. So uh, I really enjoy this work. It's very challenging, um, but uh, it's, it's very rewarding as well um, to be able to help um, people navigate the system, which could be quite daunting. <laughs> um, so I, I value everybody who helped me do that um, in our work. So one of the first things I do is I look at a case and we have to screen it to make sure the charges are what um, are the appropriate charges in the case and um, we have the evidence to support those charges. I also will look at the witness's statement and as I said I, I hope it's a, a video and audio recorded statement. So that will help me first understand um, perhaps the language abilities of the child. Also, um, I get a sense of what the relationship is um, with the offender uh, or the accused, and also the type of evidence that uh, we may be able to provide to the court. Um, it also may indicate uh, some sense of the level of trauma that may um, have uh, been experienced by this child. So it, it, it gives you that first snapshot of what the child will be um, potentially um, like in court, but also uh, it will allow us to prepare for when we're actually going to go meet with the child to um, speak with them. 
I always connect with uh, the police and victim witness and the child advocate as soon as I can, because they will become part of that um, support for the child. At an introductory meeting, I always like to try to have them as soon as I can. It's been a challenge <laughs> a little bit with the pandemic, but now we have our initial meetings sometimes over Zoom. Um, and that's just sort of often a, a meet and greet. Uh, we don't tend to want to get into too much of the details of what the court process would be, but I find that these early meetings are really important, one, to, to create a rapport with the child, um, also to connect with the caregivers and the family who are feeling a lot of anxiety, uh, often around a child potentially having to go to court. And uh, really, I think the main part of these meetings is to answer questions. And you can alleviate a lot of concerns, uh, which are often, will this person, will the child have to go into court and just look at the person who um, they've accused. It may be that the uh, result of these charges has broken apart a family um, and that there's a lot of anxiety about what um, the court process will be and how long it will take. And I find answering those questions as soon as we can, can alleviate a lot of stress. Um, uh, and um, again, hopefully build some rapport and, and trust with the family that they uh, and the child that they will feel more comfortable the next time we meet. Uh, for court prep, that's the last thing I'm going to talk about is um, that uh, these are much more detailed interviews. Uh, sometimes we'll be talking about what type of trial or preliminary inquiry it's going to be. We will go through questions. Um, a lot of this work is often done if there is a child witness advocate um, to help go through uh, the layout of a courtroom and, and their roles. And that is critical in these cases to have that foundation. And then I, when I can meet with the witnesses, are, are building on that. Again, I can answer questions. Um, but these meetings may end up being a review of evidence to help the child refresh their memory um, on the details of the case. Um, so I'm just going to hand this over to Royland about defense counsel. All right, great. Thanks, um, Maggie. You'd think after a year and a half on Zoom, I'd be able to remember to unmute myself. <laughs> uh, so uh, one of the things that Maggie said at the outset was the, the reality that dealing with uh, child witnesses in, in their criminal context, uh, in the criminal court context, is different. Uh, than dealing with other witnesses. And, and that's the reality. And uh, I, I say that because, you know, this is sort of one of these cases of one of these things is not like the other in this panel in the sense that I, I'm on the other side uh, and I have sort of different considerations as defense counsel. Um, but interestingly enough, even though what you see there on that slide at the first instance is that I have an adversarial relationship with the child witness. And I say that because I'm talking about in the context of where the child witness is the complainant or the victim in a particular case, oftentimes that's essentially the role that I'll have. I, I am representing the person that's um, been accused of a particular um, activity, uh, and uh, my job is to represent their interests in court. However, uh, even in doing that, it's important for me to understand how to deal specifically with child witnesses and how the court deals with child witnesses and what the law says about dealing with child witnesses. Because if I can't do that, then all of the things that you see Maggie is going to be very good at and Barb is going to be very good at, I can't be very good at in my job either. Um, because you're dealing with a different situation entirely. So what happens is, is the nature of that adversarial relationship changes when you are dealing with a child witness, um, where it can be uh, acutely adversarial if I'm dealing with a police officer in the context of a cross-examination. It's not likely to take that same track when I'm dealing with a child witness. And so some of the things that Maggie's already touched on um, are important for me to consider at the outset of a case. So obviously, once I have a client that's been charged with an offense like this, the first thing that I need to do is to deal with the reality of them being arrested and in custody and the reality that sometimes these allegations involve members of families and I have to deal with issues of bail that relate to contact with certain members of families 
whether or not there can be the ability to be able to see children by yourself without any supervision. Um, you know, the reality is, is that many of these cases at that early stage, there are difficult decisions that have to be made that may or may not impact my client or may or may not impact other people that might be part of that family unit. And so I have to take that into account and work and, and deal with that in the context of these cases. But at after I've dealt with that particular issue, the next thing that I'm dealing with is some of the very same things that Maggie's talked about, and I'll touch on them quickly, even though they're not on this slide. And she talked about the fact that it's important to have a statement uh, that is recorded in a way that will allow us to assess the case. That's important for me for the very same reasons that it's important for Maggie, because when I'm preparing for a witness, I need to understand what that witness's allegations are, and I need to also understand what their abilities are. And while we're talking about it in the child uh, uh, context, uh, Maggie and I think Barb will both tell you that it's not just children, as sort of in the classic sense that you have to consider this for, it's any witness. It's just more acute when you're dealing with children because of the realities of maturity and, and abilities, etc. So it's not that I don't use this in the context of other cases. It's just I have to very much think about it when it comes to children. So looking at that first statement and doing some of those same things that Maggie talked about, uh, specifically for me, I'm looking at what they're saying. I'm looking about how they say it, what I can see about their level of maturity, their ability to be able to comprehend various uh, topics, the complexity of the language that they use, all of those things are cues to me that allow me to better understand what they're saying and to better understand how I can deal with any questions that I might have to ask that child witness once I get to trial. So it's really important at that stage when I first start to look at that statement that I get that information. And I get as much information from my client as well and any other sources I can get because Unfortunately, many times I'm not going to have any sort of communication or contact with that child until we get to trial. Now, we'll talk about sort of the reality, and I always find this ironic, and, and I'm sure Maggie does too, that the government has talked about the fact that they want to protect child witnesses, but one of the few instances where I can actually ask for a preliminary inquiry uh, is a case or are cases involving child witnesses who I thought at some point in time the government was interested in protecting. But we won't we won't go down that road too long, except to say that the reason that's important is because sometimes I will have some communication with the child by way of a preliminary inquiry before a trial. Uh, depending on the nature of the charge. Sometimes I might not. So I really rely on that statement to get an assessment of who I'm dealing with, you know, as a witness. Uh, so some of those very specific things that Maggie talked about, language or communication abilities, need for testimonial aids and supports, I have to think about those as I look at that initial statement uh, or any other material that I get, because it informs not only how I deal with the child, but when Maggie and I talk later about the various testimonial aids uh, and other procedural issues that need to be addressed in the context of these cases, it will help to inform the decisions that I'll make around those uh, uh, issues and whether or not they may be issues that I just simply say I can consent to. Uh, so, uh, as I said, uh, realistically, what I'm looking at is an overall consideration of that witness and how I can deal with them in the context of my role, uh, understanding that my adversarial role has to change to reflect the nature of the law and the particular witness I'm dealing with. Uh, and uh, how that might inform decisions that I'll make and instructions that I might get from my client about how we'll proceed in various aspects of the case. And as we get to some of the testimonial aids, and I'm looking at the time because I want to make sure we get to everything, um, you'll see how some of those initial assessments become important in terms of the court's determinations as to which of these things might be available in any given context. Uh, finally, you'll see at the bottom that there's a reference to appointed counsel and just simply put, that just means a situation where as counsel, I'm actually not on record as counsel for the accused. I'm essentially 
acting solely for the purposes of cross-examination of the complainant. There are some complexities to it. I have done it before on a few occasions, but essentially what it means is that I only uh, am dealing with the cross-examination of that particular witness with instructions from the client, but then that individual is then responsible for the remainder of their case, both other witnesses, uh, any pretrial motions, any other issues that have to be dealt with. So that's generally speaking what my role is. I think what's important for me, for all of you to understand is that while it's adversarial, even in the context of what I do, that adversarial role, has to reflect the nature of dealing with child witnesses. So uh, from there, I'll just uh, pass on, I think it's to Maggie again, if I recall correctly, to move forward. So we're just gonna touch on um, testifying in a courtroom and the testimonial aids. So I mentioned that often the anxiety, the, one of the first questions I get asked is about whether the child will be in a courtroom. and looking at this picture is obviously a child could be in a courtroom and that would be a, a picture of a child sitting next to the judge testifying in a courtroom. Um, in my experience, that has become less and less common. Um, and um, that, that scene, um, it, it seems unusual to me, but some children actually want to be in a courtroom. And so we have to remember children can be of a different age uh, where they actually prefer it. So I have had witnesses who say, no, I, I, I want to be in that courtroom. But generally I will say it seems that um, uh, that's less common. Um, and that's just a view of what it would be looking at the two defense counsel, the defense counsel who's standing in the crown sitting um, uh, as counsel. What we do uh, often are have the, the child in a separate room. This is just an image of actually if the lawyers were in the room, the child is sitting there and the um, uh, woman in white is the victim witness uh, support worker. Um, that would be an image of they would be in CCTV and those cameras there would be capturing the witness testifying and that would be transmitted into the courtroom so the judge can see it. That actually is even less common um, uh, to have both counsel in the room. Now uh, it does tend to be that the witness and the, the support person will be in the uh, video room and then that image will be transmitted into the courtroom and the lawyers will be in the courtroom. Looking at what we do now <laughs> um, is we've become even more modern in our in our approach, um, and we are testifying by Zoom. Um, not in all cases, but um, that has been for us to get cases moving through the system and and making sure that you know, especially with child witnesses, that they're having their cases heard as as quickly as possible. Um, we've been doing a lot of our cases by Zoom, which. The whole point is so the testimonial aid is to allow the child not to have to see the person that there are uh, has been charged um, and try to create an environment such as this room, which looks a little bit closer to what that interview room was, where they're not sitting in a big, scary courtroom next to a judge in a, in a sash and having these lawyers, you know, sort of all in that room um, feeling um, the anxiety of that space. But this is a little closer to that child friendly room. Um, in the hopes that really the child will have the, the place where they can provide the best evidence that they can, which is what everybody wants. Um, and so over Zoom, what we do is, so the child doesn't see everybody, we pin the speaker, if everybody knows what that means, is we make it so the only person on the screen that comes up is the person who's speaking, which most likely will be the lawyers or the judge. And that's our sort of virtual way of recreating um, that testimonial aid. Um, I'm just going to speak very briefly about actually how the law has evolved in our understanding of child witnesses over um, the time. There, there was a time not that long ago that the criminal code um, required corroboration of uh, a child witnesses on the view that children are not necessarily credible or reliable witnesses. Um, that belief sort of is in a long line of, of um, case law that really comes to a, a real shift in the 90s as to how we view child witnesses and perhaps the suspicion around their veracity um, is, uh, is ill-conceived. And um, the, the concern obviously is the harm to children 
and not allowing that evidence to come before the court to be carefully considered um, is a much greater harm because that means those children do not have access to justice and it makes them very vulnerable um, unless you know we have the most solid of cases with you know corroborating witnesses and evidence and, and those will be the only ones we could get to court. So that has really shifted. Um, and as Royalin said, there's been a lot of changes in the criminal code that have changed the the, um, the sentences uh, for these types of offenses, um, and that have really driven a change of testimonial aids over the last few decades. Um, one of the recent changes through a, a Supreme Court of Canada decision was even just about, does the child need to be really cross-examined about whether they're even able to tell the truth in court. And, and um, that's been uh, considered as, as not necessary, that the child, so long as the child can come and promise to tell the truth to the court and seems to be able to understand and answer questions, there's no probing of the child's um, willingness or truthfulness at that stage. That will come through Roiland's experience cross-examination, but um, it is this acceptance that we want to get the children to testify, if necessary, in the most um, uh, comfortable way that will allow that truthfulness of their evidence to be um, heard by the court and assessed properly. Um, so the testimonial aids, and I'll just speak to them very briefly, is an idea that there's CCTV or we used to, and we do sometimes, put a screen in front of the child so they can't see out into the courtroom, but the uh, uh, counsel and um, uh, most importantly, the accused can see the child testifying. Again, we don't use that all that often um, in our courts, but that certainly has been one uh, technique that has been used and still is used if, if necessary. Um, if you can't set up a video link, that is sometimes our only option. Um, remote testimony I've just put on, those are the sections we rely on right now for Zoom. Um, a critical piece of the supports is also allowing the witness to have a support person nearby. And I'm not going to touch on this at all because Barb's going to talk about um, having dogs uh, available for witnesses. But I can just say, for me, I, I've uh, witnessed um, the impact of having a support person, but also access to a dog either in the courtroom or even outside of the courtroom while preparing for their evidence. It's, it's um, remarkable how for some witnesses, it just has a, um, a, such an impact on their ability to get through this process in a, in a, a much more comfortable way. Video recording, I've already talked to you about the idea that police statements actually can become part of the child's evidence in chief. Uh, if they adopt it, there's certain criteria for that. Um, but that also is a real game changer that that child doesn't have to walk into the space and go through all of the details um, of the abuse that um, they have described uh, to the police. Um, and Roiland talked about appointing counsel. So even if somebody is self-representing, um, they have that right, but the Crown can apply to have counsel appointed. So that person uh, who has um, been charged is not then cross-examining uh, a young child who may even be um, their close family member. And lastly, there's publication bans, which are really important for everyone to uh, remember that um, there will be, uh, almost in any of these cases, an automatic uh, publication ban requested um, to uh, protect the privacy of the complainant's name. Uh, so in most of these cases, the complainants will be referred by initials. All right, Barb, I'm over to you. <laughs> I'm sorry, for the sake of time, I'm going to um, talk a little bit about the role of the advocate, but I'd really like to spend the majority of our last five minutes on the program of our courthouse dogs. Um, the role of the advocate is right from the beginning of the investigation all the way through to the end of the prosecution and post-court services. And sometimes that lasts for a couple of years, um, even three, four years. And it's so critical to these families to have somebody who's consistent all the way through. Um, and within the CYC, we have a team of advocates who started with the investigation, who followed the case. And then once court started, we kind of started the process of getting back involved and 
um, providing all of the support and educational based program to teach children about the court process. At no time do we know the evidence um, of the child. Um, when I say that we're involved in the investigation, we're not in the room at all. We're with the child and the or the parent just sitting there, you know, entertaining them and try to just explaining, um, spending some time just explaining about what the process is for them. So a number of years ago, I'm going to move on to our next slide, um, which is about the dogs. Um, a number of years ago, I was probably because I've worked with child witnesses, this is my 34th year with children and youth. And I started to think about, was there something else that we could do? And I came across a program that had just started in Seattle, Washington, by a district attorney who had a son who had global disabilities and had a service dog. And for whatever reason, every Tuesday, the, the school didn't go forward. So the dog didn't um, had to, wasn't with the child on those days. So she started to bring the dog into, the, into her courthouse in downtown Seattle and started to see the differences of how people reacted. So we, um, I remember speaking to people about this and I, I people thought it, this would never happen that you would have a dog in a courthouse. It just doesn't seem that it would work. But through hard work and um, a lot of support, we were able to start the program. So part of what's about these dogs is they are accredited accredited from accredited school. So there we call them accredited facility dogs. And these dogs are trained the same as a service dog, but they're trained to the facility as opposed to the person with the disability. So these dogs have usually determined their temperament, they're, they're assessed from the minute that they are born to what whether they're going to make it in as a service dog or in as a facility dog. And they have to pass all the, the ADI accreditation and public access tests to be an accredited facility dog. So if you look at these dogs, um, some people say, I've never seen a dog this calm. They are trained when they are working to lay perfectly still and to be calm, whether it's in an, an investigative interview or in a courtroom. But their temperament is very different when they're vested. So if you look in the pictures here, they expose these dogs when they're training them through national service dogs in the community. And they are exposed to all kinds of different situations and they assess them. And then they make a decision at the age between two years to 2.5 years, two years and five months where the dog will be, whether it'll be in a stream with aut children with autism, or it could be for um, accredited facility dog um, for a particular facility. So the dogs that we have, you can go to the next slide, Maggie, is that they basically become part of the whole court process for the child, attend all the meetings and actually come into the courtroom or into the CCTV room. And they lay, if I put the dog in there, like as a handler um, for our dog, Iggy, I'll put him in a down command and he, will not move, he may move just to change position, but it's just because he gets comfortable, uncomfortable laying for a number of hours during testimony, but he will be at the feet of the child or just outside. Iggy's a rather large dog, so sometimes he's outside the uh, um, witness box or if he's, we're in a CCTV or we're in uh, remote testimony, which we've been doing a lot um, most recently, he'll just lay at the feet of the witness and provide a calming effect for court. So these dogs, I think, have been, to me, very exciting and a new challenge in the court system. And that's why we wanted to share it with you today. Um, to for all the teachers that are teach this, this is a situation people aren't familiar with what a courthouse dog is. And, and maybe I'll just briefly touch on that. I, um, you know, as Barb said, if, even for remote testimony, we've actually been having, we're safe, the kids come to the CYAC or a, a space where we can still provide those supports, recognizing even though we're all virtual, how, how important it is that they are in a, a space and try to recreate that. But 
I have to say with the support dogs, as I said, I've seen witnesses who um, just felt they couldn't even look at their statements um, in preparation. And then they have a dog sitting there and they'll just rub it with their feet <laughs> or just having them nearby um, can just reduce the stress level and um, just help them carry through. And I mean, I think it's, it's really been um, remarkable, uh, the impact. The only other one thing I wanted to say within Canada, it's, it's not within our criminal code, but within the US now, states actually have a courthouse dog um, provision in their criminal codes. I think there's about six states now that have that and it's is um, expanding through other states in the US. Well, thank you very much for that excellent discussion. I, I, I think I speak for everybody when I say we, we certainly learned a lot um, and thank you all for your different contributions. It's so great to hear things from three very different perspectives. So thank you all very much for being part of the panel. I'm gonna, just because we wanna answer some of the questions in the chat, I think we'll we'll bring it to the Q&A now. Um, but before we do that, I'm just gonna drop a survey in the, uh, in the chat for everybody. We ask that you please take uh, 30 seconds to fill this out and, and let us know. Um, it's just a Google form, so it's pretty simple. So. Um, that'd be excellent if you could fill that out uh, after the session today. Um, just copy, either follow the link to your browser or copy and paste it for after. Um, but with that, let's open up um, the, the uh, Q&A questions here. The first one is for Royland and it's, um, the question is, how do you talk to your clients about the cautious approach you need to take with child witnesses? Do they ever push for you to be more aggressive? Great question. It is a great question, and it's a, it's a question that is born of experience eventually as counsel when you learn that probably the most significant thing you have to learn at the outset of your career is client management. Um, and uh, part of client management is being able to identify what people's roles are within the process. And I always say to clients that um, you need to understand that there are certain uh, decisions that you're going to make during the course of um, your case that are mandated by law. And I'll take instructions and very detailed instructions about those. But when it comes to the nitty gritty, when it comes to the strategic decisions that are being made, when it comes to decisions about how to deal with a witness, um, that's my purview. That's my job, that's my role. And so you don't get really a say in how that happens. I'll talk to you very uh, in a very detailed fashion about everything I need to know from your perspective, but how I deal with the witness has to be done by me because I'm the person that has the experience and the expertise to be able to do it. So uh, depending on the nature of my client's understanding and uh, the information that they, I feel that they might need or the questions they might ask, really what I'm doing is imparting some of the same things that we've already said here during the course of our panel, which is that this is a child witness, that strategically you have to treat them in a different way, uh, that you have to consider that in the context of how you will deal with questions and that that's why I would approach the questions in this fashion versus another fashion. So hopefully by being able to help them to understand as we've tried to do here today with you how it is that uh, the approach to child witnesses is different that they'll understand why I might take a different um, approach um, that isn't maybe as I guess classically aggressive I'll say you know from what people might think happens in, in courts. Now, I, I will say finally that in, in most instances, I think Maggie will agree, there's not really that much aggression in cross-examination. A good cross-examination isn't about shouting and screaming and pointing and more about effective, careful questions that get the information that are required to be able to make your submissions at the end. So um, it's really about client management and making them understand that there is an approach that has to be taken in the context of child witnesses. Thanks very much, uh, Royland. Uh, another question we have here is for uh, Barb. Um, the question goes, dogs in courthouses, no matter how accredited, violate some people's notions of courtroom decorum, yet their presence leads to incredible results. What other elements of courtroom culture need to change to accommodate creative solutions to justice barriers? Well, I think both Maggie and I can answer that, but I think particularly for me just recently has been remote testimony. Um, that has been, it, out of COVID, 
remote testimony really has um, excelled that we are finding locations to do the remote testimony. And we have an office in um, Barrie and in Peterborough also, and we're doing remote testimony that, from those offices also. And it's been so successful that the, um, successful in a sense that it saves, in my opinion, the court time, if things seem organized, we get on camera, we finish, the child finishes, I find that a lot of the cases are running very smoothly because we the organization to get it up in remote testimony. So for me, I think that's been one of the another one of an advantage, um, including the dogs, but also I don't know, Maggie, if you have anything else you want to add. Um, I'll just comment that I, I think um you know, when we first thought about dogs, what Barb was saying, people thought, how could you possibly have a dog in the courtroom? And I I think any judge, um, you know, who's had a case with a dog in the courtroom realizes the dog isn't up and running around like my mm -hmm. dog, my poorly behaved dog, um, <laughs> barking, <laughs> interrupting the proceedings. Um, there, you barely know that they're there. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing is a lot of these cases, as I said, they're in a, in the normal world, they're in a, a room that's next to the courtroom. That's how that CCTV works and they're under a table. So nobody sees them on camera with zoom. We don't see them. I mean, we only no. see this up, right? So, so again, there's such little distraction by the dog, you know, certainly people think, well, if people are allergic to dogs or frightened by dogs, you know, we can navigate around that to mm -hmm. make sure anybody who's in that situation is not, um, feeling uncomfortable either because we have to make sure everybody's um, comfortable with that which is you know and again it is a special application but I find just with everything with child witnesses and zoom has changed everything for people feeling comfortable about remote testimony itself that it, it actually can be helpful and actually increases access to justice for some people um, you know I, I do think it's it's interesting the more comfortable we get we realize hmm, it's actually maybe not as um, as, as um, problematic as we might think. Thanks to both of you for those uh, very thoughtful responses. Um, we're running out of time, so I'm gonna try to combine two of our questions into one, um, and this can be answered by, by anybody. Um, the first is that child witnesses have many protections which extend to them to help prevent or mitigate trauma, such as testimony, testimonial aids. Uh, do we need more similar protections for other types of vulnerable witnesses, such as those suffering from chronic addictions or those experiencing housing volatility? And the other question that I'll lump into that is um, somebody asked, are dogs available for adults as well as children? If not, is this something that will be considered? Uh, open to any of you. Um, maybe I'll just address what I, since our focus is on child witnesses, I should indicate that there are provisions in the criminal code that actually allow for the testimonial aids to be available for other witnesses um, who have, um, by reason of perhaps a health uh, reason, mental health issues, developmental, intellectual uh, disabilities, um, to apply for those testimonial aids. And that would be the responsibility of the prosecutor to look at the individual witness identify areas uh, where um, we may have uh, concerns, again, about that person's ability to communicate their evidence to the court. And we can bring those applications. Um, it, it may be that we'll require some type of evidence to establish what the concerns are um, and, and how these testimonial aids will assess or assist uh, a witness. Um, but just because our presentation is focused on children, um, I will say just on that evolutionary, the child witness provisions used to be discretionary as well. And they have now moved into more of a mandatory nature where it's really on the defense to say, why shouldn't the child have the testimonial aids? But for other um, adult witnesses, um, you know, those are more discretionary. And so there's a bit more of a um, evidentiary hearing before the judge to determine whether that's appropriate, unless the defense consents. And that sometimes is the case. Sometimes they want to have this evidence. It's important to the court and we want to have it in, in, in the best means possible. And same with the dogs. I'll just say there are some other programs that have dogs uh, available. Um, uh, I know Barb's uh, through Boostin has the accredited uh, service dogs, but certainly I've had cases with adults 
um, who have had interactions with the with dogs in the courtroom. And, and again, it has a similar um, beneficial aspect to it. So expanding that program for me would be fantastic. Well, I, I think that's all the uh, questions we have time for. We have a few more in the chat. So sorry if we didn't get to your questions, but and we have a lot of comments saying very interesting uh, discussion. Thank you, lots to think about. Um, so thank you uh, once again to our panelists. Um, and I think without uh, without any further ado, we'll uh, we'll wrap it up for the evening. But thanks to everybody for attending. This has been really informative uh, for all of us. Uh, have a good night.